Roles of Men and Women The eighth talk in a series entitled What We Believe, Answers to Questions, was presented by Ron Julian on May 13, 2001, at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2001. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. A brief break occurs in the middle of the following recording. It is the result of the original audio tape switching to the second side. Let's start. I just have a series of points that I want to make here. The passages involved are complicated. I can't take us to these passages and, and go through all of the issues involved. And frankly, with some of the passages, I am still wrestling with some of the issues involved. But I want to just make the points that make sense to me right now so you can understand where I'm coming from. I'd start with the point that Genesis makes it clear that both man and woman are made in the image of God. It says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So it's very, very clear that... What's being described here is the creation of humanity in the image of God, male and female, equally alike in the image of God. And the idea of the image of God here, there's a lot that we could explore, but, but I think in the context you can see it has something to do with the fact that humanity has been given dominion over the earth. That we are like stewards that God has put in place to be stewards over the rest of his creation. And there's a reason why we are the stewards. He didn't make lions the stewards or giraffes or anyone like that. We are those stewards because we are the only part of his creation capable of being the stewards of over creation. We are the ones made in his image. We are the ones with the capacity to make moral judgments and to think things through, to understand, to recreate, to change for the better and all of that. We're the ones who have been created with the possibility of doing that. And male and female equally are created in that image. Now, my second point would be that it does seem to me that the Bible is teaching that Genesis implies a distinction between men and women of some sort. Now, I'm largely going here on my understanding of a point that Paul makes about what Genesis is saying. What we find in Genesis is that Adam, the male, is created. He is given the responsibility to till and keep the garden. He's asked to look at all of the rest of creation, to name all of the animals. After naming them, after looking at each of the animals, seeing what they were and, and giving a name to them, he discovers that there is no one corresponding to himself. No one. He sees all of these animals that are essentially paired up, male and female, but there is no one for him. And so God creates the woman at that point, and he says that it's not good for the man to be alone, that he was going to make a helper corresponding to him. Now, there has been a lot of debate in the church these days about whether the word helper ought to be translated helper and, and all of that. But it seems to me that in order for the point that Paul makes to stand, that the word helper does need to mean something like helper. And that is, in fact, what it is that God is saying. Now, what's the significance of that and how far does that go and where does that take us? That's what we're going to need to talk about. But my understanding is that that is the picture from Genesis Adam was created first, and the woman was created to be his helper. Now, don't let's not go running with that because we we want to we want to put some limits on that that are very important. But that's the picture that was painted. 
My understanding is that's what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, as I understand it right now, there is this problem. And Jack has proposed a, a scenario here that makes a lot of sense to me. That in 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing the problem that it was customary for a man to remove whatever he had on his head when praying to God or prophesying. It was a sign of respect to God that he would remove what he had on his head. It, Paul doesn't say that specifically, that that was the situation, but if, you, if we see that as the situation, it explains an awful lot about what it is that he's doing there. <coughs> Women in this culture, a married woman in particular, would have worn something on her head. And culturally, that was understood to be some sign of respect to her husband. Perhaps even a recognition of her, the fact that she was his wife and a certain submission to him. There's certain, there's, at any rate, there's something being communicated in this situation by the fact that she has something on her head. And so the problem then comes up, what does a woman do in the community when she prays or prophesies, because if she keeps what she has on her head on while her husband is taking off what he had on his head, then it looks like she's being disrespectful to God. But if she takes it off, then it looks like she's being disrespectful to her husband. And Paul's ruling on the issue was, you keep it on. It is not appropriate for you to indicate disrespect to disgrace your head, he says, in that way. Because in this passage, he says the infamous words that have been so debated that the man is the head of the woman. Um, in the middle of this argument, basically, it's just a protocol issue. I mean, what he's addressing here is, what would it be appropriate for the women to do? Which, I mean... You've got to do something. You're either going to take it off or leave it on. Which are you going to do? And his ruling is they should leave it on. It would not be appropriate for them to indicate in this cultural setting the disrespect for their husband that they would be indicating if they were to do that. And in argument for the fact that they should not show such disrespect for their husbands, he appeals to Genesis and he says, Woman originates from man... Man was made first and not the other way around, and that woman was made for the sake of the man, and man was not made for the sake of the woman. Well, this sounds pretty problematic. I mean, what do we do with that? Man was made first. Feminists have argued from this passage. Oh, oh, you're telling me that Paul's saying because he was made first, he's the boss? So the fish were made before people. Does that make them the boss? You know, the ground was made before everybody's the ground the boss because they were made first. And of course not. I mean, if that was Paul's argument, then it would be a pretty weak one and a pretty silly one. But my understanding is he's speaking into the situation that we find in Genesis. What we find in Genesis is one was made first and the other was made second for the sake of, as a helper for the other. Now, in that context the issue of who was made first is significant because the issue is who was the helper of whom? When he says man was not made for woman's sake, that sounds pretty strong. What, what do you mean? Is it, you make it sound like the woman is somehow the man's property or she, she she's there for his sake but he doesn't have to give anything to her? Is that the sort of thing he's saying? It sounds pretty bad if you think about it in those terms. But again, I think we have to understand it in the context of Genesis. Paul is appealing to what's there in Genesis. And the one thing that he wants to be appealing to is this idea that she was made for the sake of the man in the sense that she is the one who, who is the helper of the one who was given the charge of tilling the garden and keeping it. So what Paul's getting at in that passage has... Everything to do with the idea that there is a certain responsibility that was given the man and that she is charged with helping him fulfill that responsibility. 
that's as much as we have uh, in, in, in those passages, we have that picture. That's what we've got to work with when we're trying to understand the Genesis mandate. What is it that Genesis has said about this stuff? But the problem is that we can still run in all sorts of directions with this. We can, um, well, we can and have. I, I mean, I could tell you, you know, I know of a variety of people that I have met in my life that have run in all sorts of different directions with what this means, what I've just described there. They would agree with what I said so far, and from this point we would totally part company as to what it ought to actually look like. What I would like to do is take a minute now and talk about what I see as the connection between authority and responsibility. In other words, what, what should we see as the implications of the picture that the Bible is painting so far? I mean, when what we've looked at so far, what would be appropriate and legitimate implications to derive from it? Here's how it seems to me so far. First of all, all of this, it seems to me, is based on the idea, a very simple idea, that the one who is responsible, the one who is going to have to give an account, who is answerable for what happens, is the one who ought to have the authority. That, you know, in the workplace, if this manager is the one who is going to be held responsible and is going to be fired if the department doesn't meet certain standards, it would be entirely inappropriate and unfair for that manager not to have the response, the authority to implement the things that he needs to implement to make the department meet those goals, if you understand what I'm saying. That the responsibility and the authority go together. Authority in a good sense, authority in a righteous and godly sense, is tied specifically to responsibility. What I have a responsibility for is what I have authority over. This is how I understand right now, uh, you might be able to argue differently, but right now, this is how I understand the implications of a passage like Hebrews 13:17, which is not talking about male and female roles, but it's talking about leadership in the church. The author of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. My understanding right now of the picture that he's painting there is, look, your leaders have a certain responsibility for the spiritual welfare of this group of people. They are going to have to give an answer for the direction they took this group, for the kinds of teaching and counsel that they gave. Therefore, you should acknowledge the fact that they are going to be answerable for that and, and submit to the authority that they have because they have that responsibility. Now, this picture to me helps us to understand a lot about the limits of what we're talking about here. Because authority does not mean I get to have my way. Authority means I have a certain responsibility to fulfill. And the nature of the authority is limited by the nature of the responsibility. So, one of the limits that we have to understand, if we're talking about church leadership or if there is indeed a concept of headship in marriage, one of the limits that we need to understand is that it's clear as we look at the Bible that each of us has a great deal of personal responsibility for our own lives. I am going to give an answer for how I live my life before God. Did I believe? Did I love God? Did I love my neighbor as myself? And that and many more. Did I take on the responsibilities that I had and do them uh, under God, although a whole set of things that I'm going to be talking to my Creator about one day. Nobody else can have the authority over those things in my life because nobody else has the responsibility for them. So, in a church, for instance, the authority of those who are in leadership 
is limited. When we look at highly structured sorts of groups where you have the leadership telling people who they ought to marry and, no, you ought to quit that job and take another one, from my perspective, the people in that situation are under no obligation to submit to such leadership because they have no authority. They have no responsibility over that. The personal responsibility of each person for the choices they make in their life, how they are going, what they are going to believe, how they're going to conduct themselves, that's an inviolable thing. I mean, each of us individually is going to answer to God for that. Therefore, I can't expect that someone else is going to submit to me in those areas because they are going to answer for God, to God for what they do there, not me. So, that's true in the church situation, and it's also true if there is a biblical concept of headship in marriage, that that same limitation is there. A husband has not been given the right to boss his wife around, abuse her, or control her. There's a limit already in place. Before we go any farther, we know that his responsibility does not extend to her personal beliefs and choices. It's not his job. He's not the one who's going to answer for what she believes and what she chose to do with her life up to a certain point, and we want to talk about that point here in a second. So, right from the beginning, an awful lot of what we see in the discussion about headship and all of that is ruled out, from my perspective, from the beginning, if we understand the nature of the relationship between responsibility and authority. In my discussions with people over the years, people will come back at me and say, oh yeah, so you're saying if, if a husband is going to beat up on or he decides that he wants to carve up his wife or something like that, she should just submit to that, right? Oh, right. Well, no. Of course not. Because he, he has no right to do such a thing. He has not been handed the right to do what he wants. He has been given a certain responsibility for, well, we'll talk about in a second, for what he has been given responsibility and the question is whether he's going to be responsible with that. That's the only question. So right away we know that there's a tremendous limit on what kind of authority a person in church leadership, or in any kind of leadership really, including in, the, in a marriage, if, if indeed headship in marriage is what the Bible teaches, and I think at this point that it is. Um, so we have this limit that has been put there. The question then on the positive side of it is, what is the nature of the responsibility? If there is a biblical concept of headship in marriage, what is the nature of the responsibility that the man has that would give him a certain right to expect to be submitted to by those who do not bear that responsibility? If that responsibility is there, what is it? That's not an easy question. Um, first of all, it seems to me that since we, we've already talked about the whole notion of the responsibility for one's personal life, personal beliefs, I can't tell another person what to believe or, or have any access to, to the things that, that they themselves are going to have to be answerable for then it seems to me that the kind of responsibility we're talking about is a responsibility for the group. That what we're talking about when we come to headship has to do with the idea that there are certain human relationships where human beings come together to function together. A church is one of those. We here are a group of people functioning together. And as such, we have to make certain decisions about what we are going to do together. Likewise, it seems to me that the whole concept of the two becoming one in marriage implies that these two peoples are, are bringing their lives together, and they're going to live this one life together. And that means that besides those individual things about what I am going to believe and how I am going to conduct myself, there are those things that have to do with what are we about as a group. So it seems to me that if there is a biblical concept of headship, it has to deal with those kinds of issues. 
And then secondly, and this one, I put it out there, it seems to me that this is a part of the picture, but I don't exactly yet know how to put it together. This is, this is a hard one for me. But if we're looking back at the Genesis picture, and we're asking ourselves the question, what is the nature of the responsibility that Adam was given and that Eve was helping with? It seems to have to do with this creation mandate thing, that God has made his creation and, and put us, human beings, man and woman, together to be stewards over this creation. And that somehow the... What I am picturing is that each of us individually, or if we are a family, if we have joined together in marriage, that the family, husband, wife, and children, each has their own small role to play in fulfilling our obligation to be stewards of the, God's creation. That we have lives that we have been given, we have a role to play, a certain role to play in the world, and the responsibility of the one who is the head has to do with what is the role that this family is going to play. How are we going together going to conduct ourselves and, and uh, interact with the world around us? I know that's probably pretty vague, and that's because it's vague in my own mind, too. I'm, I'm, I admit that freely. I'm struggling to find something there, I think. Okay. Um, I think it would be appropriate to say something about the word helper. Jack has been very helpful to me in understanding what's going on with this word. There's been a lot of debate about this. It sounds like such a demeaning word. You know, uh, God looked and said, Adam needs a slave. Let's, Let's make him a woman. Um, that that is not I mean could it be that that is what God is saying yes if that was the only verse in the Bible we looked at that could be what God is saying but when all you have to do is wander a few verses in either direction and it's clear that that's not the kind of thing that he has in mind Um, Jack has given the analogy and I think it's very helpful when he has worked with his kids They are in school, they're doing math homework. He's helping them with their math homework. Does it imply in that situation that he is somehow inferior? Well, no, but yes. He's not inferior in math. The reason he's helping is because he's better at it than they are. But in terms of the task of doing the homework... It is not his responsibility to do the homework. It is their responsibility to do the homework. And thus, they ought to have the right in that situation, given his help, ultimately to decide what answer they're going to put there because they're the ones who are going to get the grade in the end. So the idea of helper doesn't necessarily imply inferiority. In fact, God is sometimes called the helper of Israel. And he is in no way inferior to Israel. But it does imply, or it can imply, it can be used in situations where there is a prior responsibility on the part of the other person. The one who is helping may be helping precisely because they are better able to do the thing that they are helping with. The issue is, in the end, who is going to take the rap for what happens? And it's the person who takes the rap, ultimately, who ought to have the the authority to say what happens. Okay, let me make a couple of concluding remarks here. First of all, why are, why is this important? Why are we talking about this? Um, let me just say, part of the reason we talk about it, I'm talking about it here, is because in our culture we can't avoid a question like this. Um, it's a very a very hot issue in our culture, a volatile issue, one that a lot of attention has been given to in my lifetime. I mean, things have really changed over the course of my lifetime as to how people think about a topic like this and talk about it. So I, I think we need to be prepared to try to think about it as best we can. It does seem, I mean, you understand about where I'm coming from. 
I started out, when I became a Christian, I started out as a egalitarian feminist. I mean, that was my background. You know, in my family, we were like, my family was just as liberal on every issue as the day is long. I mean, that's, that's where I was coming from. So coming to the place where I think that there is a biblical concept of headship has actually been a change for me. And the reason I'm there is because I think that the Bible really is talking about this. That's why ultimately we want to address it, is if the Bible is saying something about it, we want to understand what is it saying about it. How big an issue is it making of it? An important passage in this regard probably is um, the passage in Ephesians, where Paul is basically exhorting wives to submit to their husbands, slaves or servants to submit to their masters, and children to submit to their parents. In this passage, there's this, there's, in each case, there is this point-counterpoint. Yes, the wives are being asked to, to submit, to be subject to their husbands, but at the same time, the husbands are being asked to, as Christ did, sacrifice themselves, to give themselves up for the sake of the wife. So, it seems to me that if there is an importance to this admonition, if, if I were to get up and say, I think there is, there is an important reason why women ought to take this to heart, I think it has to do with the, ad, the kind of admonition that Paul makes in Ephesians. What he says is to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That basically what I am always doing in my life, I am living my life in the light of the truth of who God is and what he wants from me. I am always facing the question, am I, am going, am I going to submit to the truth of things as God sees them? And you and I are always battling that. You and I are always battling reality. I mean, I just, I just can't believe that any of you out there are all that different than I am in this regard. I mean, we, we want to follow the truth, and yet at the same time there is a part of us that finds anything else but the truth so much easier to live with. And especially when it puts us in a position where we, in following what we know to be true, have to go down a road that we would rather not go. I don't think, for Paul, the issue of submission in and of itself is such a big deal. It's not like what he's concerned to see is, when I show up, I want to see women submitting to their husbands. It's not that. It's not the submission that is the big deal. The question is, do I, am I willing to see myself as who I am before God and to live in the way that God wants me to live? So, if there is an appropriate kind of submission for a wife in marriage, then the issue is whether I am going to bow the knee to what God wants. It is equally true that the admonition for the husband here is just as significant. Am I going to bow the knee to the reality that I am not, I have not been set up as boss I have been set up with a responsibility and the exercise of that responsibility requires me to lose. It requires me to lose myself, to give up myself in the process. This is not, oh boy, I get a slave. This is, oh boy, I get to serve as Christ served me. So, does the man get to have his own way all the time? Is that what we're saying here? No. That's the terrible perversion of the idea of headship that I think people rightly reject and have rightly reacted against. Headship is not the power to get my way. It is a responsibility to serve. Christ described himself as coming not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at in Ephesians. 
There's, does anybody have any question that Christ has the authority over us, has the right to tell us what to do? No. But what did he do? He sacrificed himself for us. So a very important thing to understand, I think, is that the, if there is a biblical concept of headship in marriage, it has no value apart from the other Christian virtues. For a husband to be demanding his way and say, well, that's headship, it's not. And there's nothing good about it. We can't say, well, the Bible says that the man is the head, so that's okay. No, I mean, it's just a perversion. If I believe the gospel and I am seeking to be a person who bows the knee to God, and in my doing that, I am seeking to love my neighbor as myself, and in my doing that, I am recognizing that I have an obligation to sacrifice myself for the welfare of my partner in marriage. Now, with all of that stuff in place, we could talk about the virtues inherent with headship, it seems to me. Otherwise, it is just a perversion. And it's worse than not being there at all, from my perspective. A headship that is being misused is, is not partway towards what we're supposed to be where it is heading in the other direction. Does headship mean that the man makes all the decisions? Well, I can't see how that could be. That seems perverse and idiotic to me. I don't I don't I can't imagine how that would be. Now, I'm just using strong language because I know there are people that believe that that's the case, that that's what headship means. But the way I look at it is since my wife is better than I am at many things, how would I be fulfilling my responsibility for my family by taking decisions away from the more qualified person and giving them to me, the less qualified person? That doesn't make any sense. What I do believe in is that I have the responsibility for the direction my family is going. But not this analogy breaks down because it's not the same as manager employee kind of thing but if you think about a manager in a business a manager who has responsibility for things if he's a good one delegates responsibility to all sorts of people and has them making all kinds of decisions because he trusts them to do the job and in the end he's willing to take responsibility for what they have decided well, it seems to me it's the same thing. I am willing to take responsibility for what my wife has decided about many things in our family because I trust her, and she's better. Her judgment about those things is better than mine, I think. So, But in the end, I think for the direction of my family, God will be asking me about that. Why did you guys go that way? And I should be prepared to say... Why? Um, is it appropriate not to submit? Yes, it seems to me it is. The analogy I would make is between the way the apostles dealt with the Sanhedrin. The apostles who taught things, I mean, Peter taught about submitting to the government, submitting to those in authority. Sanhedrin tells him, well, okay, I want you to shut up about this Jesus stuff. And he says, no, I'm not going to. What kind of submission is that? I mean, they say, do it, and he says, no, I'm not. Or they said, don't do it, and he says, yes, I will. Well, I mean, in a way, that's you could, you could spend a lot of time, I think, very profitably thinking about that very fact. Because if you think about that, it'll help us to break out of this idea that the Bible is this rule book. Okay, the Bible says, submit to governing authorities. Okay, there's a governing authority. They told me to do this evil, ungodly, disobedient thing. The rule says, submit to government authorities, so I'll go follow the rule. That's not the way the biblical authors conducted their lives. It's not what we see as the model for us. Submit to authorities is one truth, but there are others. And I think partly it has to do with the nature of, like I was saying, what is the appropriate area of responsibility? I think when the Sanhedrin told uh, 
the apostles to shut up about Jesus, you could argue that they were stepping outside of what was their appropriate God-given responsibility as rulers of the community. Um, and at any rate, they were exercising that authority in an inappropriate way. It seems to me that the two things that then that would give me room to not submit is, first of all, when the other person is stepping outside the limits of their authority, when they are presuming to take upon themselves the right to tell me what to do in areas that they do not have the responsibility for, then I have, and I know I have the responsibility for it myself, then I have every right to exercise my judgment in the way that I think the responsibility needs to be exercised. And then the other one is, if it seems to me, that if the other person is clearly refusing to take on their responsibility in a godly way, then they have abdicated the, the right to expect submission from me. And that may be what happened with the Sanhedrin. They could, Peter and um, the rest of the apostles could say, as leaders of the Jewish community... You are in rebellion against the God of your fathers by telling us to stop preaching the gospel. Ultimately, you have shown yourself not to be faithful in your responsibility, but unfaithful. And so, in a church situation or in a marriage situation, it seems to me there comes a point where the other person has demonstrated that they are not taking on the responsibility that is theirs and trying to be godly and and obedient in doing it. And at that point, if, if the other person is not taking on that responsibility, then I think I have ceased to have the responsibility to submit to them. However, I would put one word of caution in here. We need to remember what 1 Peter said, what Peter said in 1 Peter about this. There he was talking about a wife submitting to a husband, but in that situation, the context is submitting to people, to rulers, to masters, to husbands who are not believers and who are not exercising their responsibility in a godly way. Why are they submitting in that case? They're choosing to submit in certain situations for the sake of the other person. The idea is, rather than fighting them, I am going to, as much as I can, within the limits of what is, I'm going to make it clear that I'm willing to be flexible in this situation. But again, there are limits on how far that can go, I think. These are principles by which we're operating. The general principle would have to do with, the, I think, the principle of loving, loving my neighbor as myself. I am going to try to do what is best in my judgment for the other person. If being accommodating, even when they're being unreasonable, is appropriate, then I will do that. If at a certain spot they have so violated their responsibility that it really does, they need to be brought up short and, you know, submitting to it would just to be to perpetuate evil and to not call them to account for what they're doing, then I need to stop and say, no, I'm not going there anymore. The goal always, it seems to me, is I'm trying to do what God has called me to do, which is to think about how can I be on the other person's side? Being on their side doesn't mean going along with them all the time, but sometimes it may. Sometimes God does ask us to actually give up what we would have a right to do in a certain situation in order to win the other person. So, is it appropriate not to submit? Yes. It can be very appropriate, always under the guidance of that question of, of what am I... What do I think I'm accomplishing for the other person? Practically speaking, how big a role does this play in things? This idea of headship, if there is indeed a biblical concept of headship in marriage, how big a role does it play? Well, I, I don't know how to answer that question exactly. I, I can tell you what makes sense to me right now. Part of the reason it's hard for me to 
to say is because in 22 years of marriage, it has never been an issue for Robbie and me. I don't, I don't think there has ever been a time when, like, I have had to pull rank or something like that. I mean, it just, it just doesn't work that way. And I think that, well, all I can say is, Robbie and I believe in the concept of headship in marriage. We think that's what the Bible's saying. And yet at the same time, it seems to me that we have a mutual respect for one another that makes it so it's just we're not we're not at war over this question. Do we ever disagree about things? Yeah, we do disagree about things. But since neither of us has the idea that just because we disagree about things, that means that I get to win. That's not the way headship works. Um, it doesn't. It it has never come to the point where I we have actually had to say I have to ask you to submit to me on this thing. Am I saying that it, that in a good marriage it never should happen? No, I'm not saying that. If if it were totally irrelevant, I don't see why the Bible would bring it up. But what seems to me, like I said before, is the issue is the connection between our behavior and our maturity as Christian believers. There may come a place where a wife will genuinely disagree with the course her husband firmly and responsibly believes that they must take together. I think that can happen. Then it seems that the issue is one of faith. Faith not in her husband, but faith in God belief that that God is capable of taking care of her and a belief that God has called her to recognize the responsibility that he has in this area. So I think it could become an issue, but frankly, in most of the marriages that I know, the people that I know, I would say that our marriages are run along lines that most egalitarians would say that's what they think a marriage ought to look like. This is where I don't think that it is intended to be an autocratic situation. The issue is, really, the concept of headship to me has never meant, oh boy, I get to have my way. The concept of headship is this very sobering reality that in marrying, I have joined my life together with other people, my wife and my children, and I have the responsibility to take care about where we're going and what we're doing. Um, It's a sobering thing. In actuality, I think, it means, as as Jack has said, I think the, the concept of my responsibility means that when it comes to being willing to not get my way in a whole variety of ways and issues, I ought to be first in line. It is my responsibility to to look out for the welfare of my family and the course it is going. And that may mean, many times may mean, a willingness to give up things that I would like for the sake of the health and the welfare of my family. Um, I I had a thought, a brilliant thought, about one other thing that I didn't put in my notes that I wanted to mention. And this is the spot where I was going to put it in. And I have forgotten what it is. So, my most brilliant point, the point that would have brought it all together and say, oh, well, if you're saying that, then, of course, I understand entirely what you mean. Um, I've forgotten that point, so you'll just have to, but you'll have to trust me. If you had heard that, you would have really been convinced by what I'm saying. Okay, well, so let's take a few minutes now for um, any questions or comments that you may have. I only ask that you uh, be kind. And remember, as I said, I have not addressed the question of roles in, in teaching and that sort of stuff. The thorny question about Paul, what Paul means by when he says he doesn't allow a woman to teach and that sort of thing. We'll talk about that next week. So, if
I haven't offended you yet, we'll we'll catch you next week and it will work then. Any questions or comments? You don't have to. It's not a requirement. Oh, back there, Scott. Well, is there? There's a. Uh a verse that uh, talks about the husband's responsibility for the uh, the wife's spiritual um, uh, life or something. I don't know the exact verse. I'm just yeah. wondering if you were going to comment on that. Yeah. Well, there there are a lot of details that that we could explore with this question. I think what you're talking about is the Ephesian passage that I was talking about. Let me. Um, I, I think that's the one that you would be talking about. Let me get that one first, and then can you, Jack? Can you think of? Isn't that probably what he has in mind? Christ in the church and that stuff. I think. Let me read this to you. Um, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. There we find that language again. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Okay. Well, I think... Now, maybe there's another passage that I'm not thinking of right now, but I think what I have often heard is that this passage... um, See, the analogy is given to Christ who gave himself up for the church, for us. And then it describes how he gave himself up. He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present himself to church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. And what people often do, and I could understand, it might be the case, but what people often do is say, see, that's the whole analogy. Just as Christ loves the church, the husband is supposed to love his wife, And therefore, the way Christ loved the church was sanctifying her and um, presenting her without any spot or wrinkle or any of that kind of stuff so that she should be holy and blameless. So, therefore, it is the husband's responsibility, just as it is Christ's responsibility to sanctify us, it is the husband's responsibility to sanctify his wife. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's what Paul means. What... The analogy he's making is that Christ gave himself up for the church, and the husband is to give himself up for the wife. Christ gave himself up in a unique way. He sanctified us by dying on a cross and making it possible for the Spirit of God to come and impart sanctification to us. I mean, everything that he's describing there is the supernatural work that Christ brought about through what he did on the cross. I don't think that Paul at all is saying that the husband has some sort of corollary supernatural or not supernatural work that he can do to sanctify his wife somehow. Um, I And life just convinces me of the same thing. I don't think I have the power to sanctify my wife, nor does she have the power to sanctify me. We are both looking to Christ to do that job. But he goes on in the analogy, so husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. Now he's talking about the two of us together as one. I ought to be thinking of that other person the way I'm thinking about myself. You know, if I'm not willing to let 
my own needs go unattended, then why would I be willing for my wife's needs to go unattended? Because we're we're in this together. And I would say, on that basis, he could equally make the appeal that the wife should do the same thing for the husband. On that ground, that, that we are in this together, each of us is being called upon to be looking out for the other person. But what he's done is painted a beautiful picture of what Christ did for our sake so that he can give the analogy of that the husband should be likewise willing to sacrifice himself for the wife. But the idea that somehow the husband is the priest in the home who is administering the grace of God to his wife and children, I think is not a biblical idea at this point. I, I think that's taking the analogy too far. I think it seems to me the pressure is really on the husband because she has to respect him and a lot of men aren't worth respecting yeah well I, I agree with you I agree with you it's the, the number of situations I've seen where a man has made it virtually impossible for his wife to respect him it's it's tragic yes it is like I say I see this as not this is not a power that has been given to the husband so much as it is a responsibility. And again, I want to emphasize a certain limited perspective. But doesn't the respect mean not respect him because he's necessarily worthy of respect, but respect the role he's been given? That's well, what you're respecting? Yes and no, it seems to me. I, of course, everybody around here knows I answer yes and no to every question. So. Um, I was put on this earth to make distinctions. You know, other people build great pyramids and buildings and found mighty empires, and I exist to make distinctions. That's that's what I do. Um, the I think you're right. Um, there is there is a there is a kind of there's an aspect to this sort of respect that, that you're right, it, it's a respect of his role. And so within certain limits, I could say, okay, I know that my husband is a bozo when it comes to this kind of stuff over here. Nonetheless, I do respect the responsibility he has and that he is genuinely trying to fulfill that responsibility. I think the kind of respect for the role, though, it breaks down at the place where the person has really, what I meant by he, he can't, he made it impossible to be respected, is if if you're not taking on that role and that responsibility in a righteous and godly way, if you're not genuinely trying to do right, to to be obedient to God and to do what you've been called to do, then I don't think she can respect the role anymore because he's not filling it. I mean, it's not just it's not the title that she's respecting, it is it is the person who is genuinely trying to fill out that role, as I would look at it right now. So there does come that place where I would say in that sort of situation, I am still called upon, she is called upon to love him in the sense of be looking out for his welfare. But at that point it becomes it's more like loving your enemy. Christ has called us to love our enemy, and here is a person who is not is not doing what he ought to do, is not helping me, is not seeking my welfare, but is actually harming us and family or whatever may be going on. I can't respect him in that role because he hasn't taken the role, but I can I can recognize that in spite of his faults. Jesus is the sort of person that would die on the cross for him. So I'm still trying to be respectful in the sense of I, I want to be redemptive if I can. And I recognize that that's a very big challenge. When, you're, when you come to a marriage that is in crisis, um, it is a very big challenge for people to take on trying to love your enemy in that regard. But I think it is what we're called to. We may fail at it, but it is what we're called to try. 
Will you explain what Peter's saying when he says, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel? <laughs> no, no, I won't. <laughs> I'm sorry, we've run out of time. We don't have time for any more questions. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, see, I'm inclined... I mean, the last time I, I tried to sort that question out for myself, where I sort of tentatively landed was on the idea of... Well, here, let me... Since I... Let me make a distinction, all right? What... We have, to, we have to ask the question, weak in what sense? I mean, weak in regard to what? He could be saying there is something inherently weak about woman by nature, and people have tried to fill in various things like that. Well, you know, women are emotional, so you've got to be, you know, you've got to be careful what you say or that sort of thing. I don't know. I... I don't think that's what he's getting at at this point. And I'm in, the, I'm in the place when it comes to this sort of question that I am firmly convinced that there is a difference between men and women. In fact, there is a great difference between men and women. And I am very reluctant to try to put my finger on what the difference is between them. When you start saying what things like, well, women are more emotional. Well... I, I know I recognize something that sort of corresponds to that, but I, I also see a lot of situations where the men are falling apart and the women are just taken on. If you know what I mean? I mean it's not like women are are always somehow sort of fragile and the men are the ones who are gonna are gonna face it resolutely. I mean I uh, maybe you guys have heard me tell this story before, but you know, there was the time when Brian had a very serious injury. He basically got scalped but in, a, in an injury. He had to have 30 stitches in a big semicircle around his head. I went to the doctor. I held him down while, the, while they're sewing him up. And the anesthetic doesn't quite get all the spots. So it's really hurting. And he's screaming and looking at me, you know, like, what are you doing to me? You're holding me down here while they're torturing me. And so, sewed it all up. We got the stitches out, and Brian went running along, and he fell, and he, he bumped into Christie's leg. And the stitches... And no, it wasn't, it wasn't Christie's fault. No, he just tripped. I mean, it was just... I mean, you know, it wasn't even... I mean, it was just like, you know, it was just a bump. But it popped. It split open again. At that point, I went with Robbie into our bedroom. I threw myself down on the bed, and I said, I can't go on. I quit. I refuse to do this anymore. And Robbie just looked at me and said, no, you don't. You can't. And I said, oh, all right. So I took him back to the doctor and held him down again while they sewed him up. Well... So, I mean, who was the weaker vessel in that situation? I mean, I fell apart, and Robbie, no, no, we just got to face into this. So, is there an emotional difference between men and women? I think there is. A lot having to do with motherhood and fatherhood and the differences between those things. And uh, Yeah, I think so. But we get really, really dicey if we try to say, therefore, you ought to do it like this. I mean, it gets pretty tricky to do that. But the question is whether Peter even means that at all, whether he has something about the nature of women as women that is determining this, or whether he's talking about the weaker position that they are in. Because it is true that in a marriage by right they're being called upon to submit, and culturally speaking at this time, I mean, there was no question. The husband, I mean, the wife had no position except with her husband. I mean, it was a very, very um, male-dominated society. Um, 
And so, as with a weaker vessel, could imply that I'm supposed to recognize the inherent vulnerability of her position. Not vulnerability as in, you're tough and you can take it, but she can't. But rather, you have a superior position to hers and you shouldn't you should not be abusing it. You basically recognize the situation and act accordingly. I would like it. That makes a lot of sense. Is that what he means? I, I think it's possible that that's what he means, but I'm not sure. So we should probably quit. We've kind of run out of time.